very warm welcome to episode two of the Brexit Briefing, a brand new weekly guide exclusive to talk podcasts, bringing you an honest analysis of all the latest developments as the United Kingdom prepares to leave the European Union. Join us as we dispel the myths and set the record straight about all that's been going on with the Brexit process. Coming up in this edition, we hear the terms the single market and the customs union a lot on the news, but it seems to me as though very few journalists, political correspondents, whoever, actually take the trouble to explain what they mean. I'm going to attempt to put that right. Also, the implications of the recent House of Commons defeat for the government that means Parliament has a legal guarantee of a vote on the final Brexit deal. But I ask, does it really matter? And Gina Miller's been in the news again. More on her a little bit later. First of all, um, the compliments of the season to you all. I hope you're enjoying the Christmas period, the festivities, whenever it is you're listening to this. Some people have said to me, why are you talking about Brexit so close to Christmas? I'm recording this on the 23rd of December. And um, we're in a bit of a funny time because Damien Green resigned as Deputy Prime Minister. Well, resigned. He was sacked, really. We, we know that. On when was it? Wednesday just gone. Um, was it Wednesday or Thursday? Round about that period, anyway. And the BBC's Newsnight programme had already gone on its Christmas holidays. And we got this period between Christmas and New Year, between, you know, the 27th to the 31st, where even though it's kind of back to work for a lot of people, there aren't proper news programmes on the television, even though the world is keeping turning. It's a bit of a strange period, that. What a lot of people don't know is that until about 1973, I think it was, New Year's Day wasn't even a bank holiday in England and Wales. Scotland has its own traditions on that, but that, that's another matter. In England and Wales, it was only when Edward Heath created some more bank holidays that, that we got New Year's Day off. And while in a, in a way that might seem like a good thing, I'm not a huge fan of the New Year bank holiday myself, it has sort of created this sort of zombie period from the 27th to the 31st where nothing much gets done and, you know, doing any kind of business is hard. But worse still, news bulletins are not their proper length. But perhaps, I look, I've taken a look at the Christmas TV schedule. There's not that much worth watching. There isn't the, what I would call a fools and horses moment where the whole family, three generations, all sit round together and have a good laugh. There's no Morecambe and Wise or modern-day equivalent of that. There's a lot of filler programming, old films, that sort of thing, and repeats. Um, and, and really, maybe you just want a break from all this frivolity. All right, I'll tell you what, pour yourself a nice glass of wine or whatever your tipple is. Have a mince pie. And let's listen to some, something with a bit of substance. The Brexit Briefing. Right, let's crack on. First up, we hear this term single market a lot and we also hear the term customs union a lot. Political correspondents on all the main broadcasters, BBC, ITV, Sky, whoever, use these terms assuming we all know what they are and assuming even the political establishment knows what they are. I can confirm, having been in a meeting with the Labour MP Stephen Doughty, that he doesn't know what either of the terms single market or customs union actually mean. So I'm going to take a moment now to explain in as clear terms as I can what the terms single market and customs union mean and what the implications are for staying in or leaving both. 
We start with the single market. The term single market has no specific legal definition. It essentially means single regulatory regime. It aims to break down all barriers to trading across the EU and even to non-EU member states by ensuring the four freedoms. They are goods, services, capital and labour. Free movement of goods, services and capital means the elimination of tariffs and reduces costs and administrative burdens by applying the same set of rules, i.e. single regulatory regime, as I just said, among all those states which are a member of it. The free movement of labour, the fourth freedom, is more controversial, for it effectively means accepting unlimited, indefinite levels of immigration from other EU states, regardless of their skill level. It explains why Theresa May failed to get immigration levels down to her target of tens of thousands in every single one of her six years as Home Secretary, and why we need to build a city the size of Cardiff every single year to keep up with current immigration rates. But there is a catch. Free movement of labour is not an absolute condition of single market membership. More on that later. The Customs Union ensures all member countries charge the same import duties to non-members. For Brexit to be a success, it is essential that the UK is not part of the Customs Union. It will prevent our country from being able to agree free trade deals with the wider world or even set tariffs on our own terms to countries where no free trade deal exists. The importance of not being a part of the customs union, cannot be understated. Labour's support for continued membership of the customs union is baffling, especially since they claim to support the principle of Brexit. I am baffled in general by Labour's policy. They seem to shift from one day to the next, and the policy changes depending on which shadow cabinet minister you ask. I don't think they know themselves. I am broadly in favour of continued membership of the single market. Let me be absolutely clear. My priority is to get the United Kingdom out of the European Union and to stay out. My side, the Leave side, won the referendum and by a clear though not overwhelming margin. But I take on board Sir Winston Churchill's wise maxim in victory magnanimity. With that in mind, I wish to persuade as many Remain voters as possible of my arguments, and am the first to acknowledge that, if Brexit is handled incorrectly, it could go badly wrong. By the same token, I am painfully aware that there are those among the political establishment, and indeed the media, who actively want Brexit to fail, so they can say, I told you so. I'll name two such individuals, Sir Vince Cable, the leader of the sarcastically titled Liberal Democrats, a party that has now abandoned both liberalism and democracy, it seems to me, and James O'Brien, the condescending creep who hosts a three-hour daily anti-Brexit programme on LBC, where he frequently lies, smears and twists the words of Brexit campaigners to suit his own agenda. 
A worst-case scenario would see, on the day after Brexit, huge queues of lorries at Dover because of the endless bureaucratic procedures the EU must, by international law, impose on what are known as third countries, which the UK will have then become. With jobs vanishing by the day and the value of the pound plummeting, the government would fall. The arrogant Remainers are already waiting in the wings to take their revenge, from the aforementioned servants' cable, to the Blairites and the Brownites on the Labour backbenches, to the likes of Anna Soubry and Kenneth Clark among the Conservatives, to the SNP and Plaid Cymru, who seek to see Scotland and Wales ruled directly from Brussels, doing away with the Westminster middlemen. Don't kid yourself into believing that either the SNP or Plaid Cymru are actually Scottish or Welsh nationalists. They are not. They want direct rule from Brussels. That is their agenda. A new government of any party could then seek election pledging re-entry into the European Union on whatever terms they could get, meaning we would almost certainly be compelled to adopt the euro as part of our national humiliation. We could also forget controlling our borders, whether from a cheap influx of EU labour or from the social unrest being brought about by the massive growth of Islamic populations across mainland Europe. That is the nightmare scenario. I prefer a more cautious approach, based on the precedents that have already been set. What is colloquially known as the Norway option would be far, far easier to achieve, because we would be following a path that has already been laid out, meaning years of monotonous negotiations would not be necessary. Here's how it works. Norway is not, nor has ever been, a member of the European Union. It is, however, a member of the European Economic Area, the EEA. If the UK chose to stay in the EEA, we would be able to leave the EU, agree our own trade deals with non-EU countries, since we would not be in the customs union, and would stay in the single market. Crucially, we would also be able to suspend freedom of movement. And this is where UKIP went wrong. UKIP has been sending leaflets to houses up and down the country, possibly every house in the country, saying that we can't suspend freedom of movement if we stay in the single market. This is incorrect. EEA members are allowed to activate Article 112 of the EEA agreement, known as the emergency break. This method has been used by Liechtenstein to suspend freedom of movement indefinitely and to implement its own quota system. As a far larger country, with much more clout, the UK could do the same thing with ease. There are inevitably downsides to EEA membership, and I, I admit this quite openly. We would still have to pay some money every year, though nowhere near as much as at present. We would also have to accept their regulations when we traded with the EU. But then again, we also have to accept the rules of the USA, China, India, or any other country we choose to trade with, which is reasonable. But on the crucial matters, parliamentary sovereignty, the supremacy of British courts, immigration controls, as I just said, the ability to form trade deals with the wider world, and the ability to form a genuinely independent foreign policy, we would be winners on all counts. We would no longer be in a situation where EU law overrides British law. The highest courts in the land would sit in this country, 
our elected representatives in Parliament would have the power to set criteria to limit immigration levels. Our armed forces personnel would never, ever have to swear an oath of allegiance to the EU flag. It's coming. Mr Juncker has said as much. And we would be free from the protectionist EU regulations that currently prevent us from forming free trade deals with the wider world, such as Brazil, India and Singapore, places with growing economies and populations where people actually live. This solution is remarkably straightforward and uncomplicated. The roadmap is already in place. Why is our political establishment so reluctant to embrace it? Don't forget to check out the other podcasts on the website. Elliot Spiteri's Talk Motoring is available right now. In the first edition, Elliot previews the 2021 Baby Mini SUV, McLaren's $1 million Senna hypercar, the Porsche 911 Next Generation, and the Lamborghini Urus. He also looks at the legal implications of contradictory government advice and subsequent tax policy on diesel cars. And coming up in early 2018, radio legend Tony Horn joins us with the Dead Good podcast, where he looks back on the lives of the recently deceased, both famous and not so famous. On the 13th of December, the government suffered a blow. Well, we were told it was a blow anyway, when it was narrowly defeated um, in the House of Commons for the first time on its own business. Its own business programme was defeated on for the first time when 11 Tory MPs joined in a rebellion, which the end result was that Parliament will now be given a legal guarantee of a vote on the final Brexit deal struck with Brussels. Let's listen in to hear how MPs reacted when the vote went through. You heard two people speaking in that clip amongst all the shouting. The first was the Deputy Speaker, Lindsay Hoyle, who very sadly experienced a tragedy just two days after that, when his daughter was found hanged at the age of 28. So our thoughts are very much with him. It's always tragic to lose somebody under such horrible circumstances, but it probably is a bit worse at this time of year when families are getting together. So our thoughts are very much with him. I'm sure you'll all agree. The other voice you heard, the the person giving out the result, um, was Stephen Doughty, the MP for the constituency I live in, Cardiff South and Penarth. I can tell you a little bit about Mr Doughty because in, I think it was August or September of 2016, I attended a seminar in in the constituency and it was, there were 12 of us present 
And of those 12, I was the only one who supported Brexit. And the whole thing was farcical. I've written about it at length on my blog, SovereigntyUK.com, if you want full details of that experience. But what I can tell you is, firstly, Mr Doughty does not know what the terms single market and customs union mean, so maybe he could benefit from listening to the early part of the podcast. And secondly, I left that meeting in no doubt whatsoever that he would do everything he could to try and delay and frustrate and preferably block the Brexit process if he thought he could get away with it. The interesting thing about Mr Doughty is that over the years when more and more powers were handed over to Brussels, whether it be through the various EU treaties or by piecemeal means, he had absolutely nothing to say about Parliament's sovereignty being eroded. And yet now, when 17.4 million people voted leave to get us out of the European Union, he suddenly developed a newfound enthusiasm for Parliament to have a say on the Brexit process. I find that a touch two-faced, don't you? Now just listen to those noises, those animal-like noises we heard from the House of Commons chamber as the result was announced. That shows the sheer contempt with which many MPs hold the British people for daring to vote leave. Like Mr Doughty, don't kid yourself into believing that they care about Parliament having a say. They do not. This is about them trying to frustrate and water down the Brexit process if they can get away with it. They knew full well that they were weakening the Prime Minister's hand, or at least humiliating her, just a day before she went back to Brussels for the latest stage of negotiations. In practical terms, what it means is that unless the government manages to overturn it further down the line, a new Act of Parliament will have to be passed before ministers can implement the withdrawal deal struck with Brussels. Ministers had made several efforts to placate the Conservative rebels before that vote and argued that Dominic Grieve, the ringleader of this, with his amendment had put unnecessary pressure, time pressure, on the government if talks with the EU continued until the last minute. But beyond that, does it really matter? Well, probably not, because Theresa May had promised Parliament to vote on it anyway, and this just formalises it. And it's also worth bearing in mind that if there's no deal come March 2019, the UK will leave the European Union regardless, and Parliament won't be consulted at all. They cannot be consulted on a deal that does not exist. So in the grand scheme of things, does it really matter that much? Well, apart from humiliating Theresa May when she went to Brussels, probably not. But were those rebels, so-called rebels on the Tory backbenches, and those on the Labour backbenches who treat Leave voters with utter contempt, helping matters in any way? Absolutely not. And finally, we're a bit pushed for time, so I'll keep this brief. Do you remember Gina Miller, the businesswoman who successfully brought a court case which forced the government to get a parliamentary vote before triggering an Article 50? Now, a few days ago, just before Christmas, she was involved in a debate with the Tory MP Michael Fabricant on Sky News when she claimed that British citizens would require visas to visit EU countries post-Brexit. This was alarmist rubbish, and I suspect she knew it. The United Kingdom joined the EEC, the precursor to the EU, in 1973, but British citizens did not need visas to visit mainland Europe long before then. I've looked up the date visas were abolished. Um, in 1947, um, visa requirements were abolished for France, Belgium, 
Luxembourg, Norway, Denmark, Sweden, the Netherlands, Switzerland, Liechtenstein, Iceland. In 1948, they were abolished for Italy and Monaco. In 1955, they were abolished for Austria. Um, and, and it goes on, the list goes on. There were no visa requirements before Britain joined the EEC, the precursor to the EU. And it's frankly absurd to suggest we'll need visas for holidays in Spain and France and Italy afterwards. In addition, UK citizens can visit many other countries all over the world without a visa. Countries including Argentina, Brazil, Canada, Indonesia, Singapore and many, many others. Gina Miller was talking alarmist rubbish. And that brings us to the end of the Brexit briefing. I hope you take some time out to relax over the festive period. Please do spare a thought for all those families who can't be together, particularly those serving in the armed forces. I'll catch you in early 2018. Until then, Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Cheers.